with Palm Sunday as Jesus enters Jerusalem. That's chapter 19. It's the very beginning, the first moment. But we have a Palm Sunday coming up in the future, so we've got to save that. And we come out of order. But you can't not preach a Palm Sunday text on Palm Sunday. So, so we're skipping over that, and then we'll come back to it, and it, it puts things in a little strange, but we, we, our brains can make it work. And so today, uh, in light of that, we're going to be talking about crying, cleaning, and cornerstoning. I don't, know how to, I don't know how to make that one work. Or we could say cry, clean, corner, um, crying. Probably a favorite topic. I'm a huge crier. I cry all the time. Once you get to know me, you'll, you'll see that for sure. I was trying to think of some memorable ones. The one that first came to mind was when I did RUF for 10 years, and I loved uh, being a campus minister at OU. So when my time was ending, I planned a big party for the last week. You know, this is May 2011. Big party. It was going to be a blowout. It's going to be awesome. And then I knew because I had a party the last week, I needed to think about the second to last week and like steal myself and know that this is going to be very emotional because that was going to be the last sort of normal meeting that we were going to have. And so I was thinking about the last week. I did not prepare myself for the third to last week. That one snuck up on me because I was so focused on the second to last week and holding it together. When I got up on the third to last week to preach, I could not function. I started crying uncontrollably. And you know, okay, that's sort of nice to hear about, but when you're in sitting there, you don't want to watch a dude stand up here and cry. It is not good for anybody. So I, I called Julie up because uh, she was there and asked her to pray for me. And I, was, I went back and sat down and I said, if I cannot hold it together when she stops, we are done. I am sending everyone home. And I did. I, I made it. Whew. But that one I did not expect. Of course, uh, with my dad passing away, I cried probably every day with a song that comes on or I think of him. And so that's not unusual. I do remember, though, when I was in yoga one time, there was a woman next to me, and she was crying. And so afterwards I said, are you okay? And her, she had just decided that day to leave her husband. And, um, and then somewhere around last year, with the weight of the world and and COVID, and George Floyd, I started crying in yoga all the time. Don't be surprised. Cleaning, I'm not as, I don't have as many great cleaning stories. Uh, maybe just, you know, notice around. If you see stuff, pick it up, throw it away. As we uh, host people into our space, uh, we'll, we'll get to cleaning. Uh, I like hiring. Cleaning out is a lot more fun, of course. And then we'll talk about cornerstones as well. First, crying. Just really appreciate with what I just told you, Jesus' emotional life. He is not a stoic. He is not like Buddha sitting up there, not affected by the world at all. He's not a naturalist or determinist. Think about when he was at Lazarus' tomb. This is, if you're into Scripture memory, you've got to have this one down. John 11:35. 35, Jesus wept, right? Pretty simple. 
If you want to add the next one, look up Job 3.2. I guarantee you can memorize these two Bible verses today. Job 3.2, John 11.35. Jesus is at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And he hates death. He knows it's there. He also knows he's about to resurrect him. Like, if he looks in the future, this guy's about to be not dead. But he hates death and he weeps. These important words that Jesus weeps when he sees things that aren't the way they're supposed to be. And here he is, knowing he's going to be at Jerusalem, finally arriving there after walking through Samaria all these times. And in 1941, it says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now this is not, again, one of these like, give me a moment. This is like sad, ugly, big, huge tears, massive cry. Right in the middle of the road with anguish. The king is crying. He's upset because he knows that all of these people, not not every single one, but all these people are going to reject him. And that tears him up. He knows that he's the only way. It's the way, the truth, and the life. And these people aren't going to see it. And Jerusalem will be destroyed. Remember, this is always important that Jerusalem gets taken to the ground in, in 70 A.D. by the Romans. They wanted to leave no stone unturned. And they especially destroy the temple, the place of God's people. And imagine if, if Baltimore or D.C. Or, or even Columbia were destroyed. That's what happens. Think about What's happening in Ukraine right now is these cities and monuments and churches and, and uh, long-time places are being taken to the ground. Now, when, when we see things like this or, or encounter news items, we usually have three big responses. One is, don't care. Lethargy. Maybe it's because of compassion fatigue. Maybe... It's just there's so much information. How do we process it all? We can't care about everything. The second is excitement. We cheer. We wear our colors. Our team won or our team lost. We show our support. You know, I'm imagining I'm going to see some, some Raven jerseys pretty soon. I already have my, my Orioles hat because I need an American League team. But then also there's crying, lamenting, weeping. Think about Nehemiah when he heard the news of Jerusalem way back before this. He wasn't even there. They weren't even his people that he knew. And he hears the news and he weeps. The very first response is this emotional one where he feels connected. And so, church, what are we weeping about? Do we weep and lament marriages, kids, things that happen in our nation, what's going on in Ukraine, 
what's happening in our prison systems with crimes and crises. What are we weeping about? When Julie and I started marriage counseling, we'd been married probably 10 or 12 years at that point. Um, Our counselor, his name was Bruce, you probably hear me talk about him. And uh, because I was a pastor, I was also interested in how he was doing it to us, which is always a little meta-narrative screwed up a little bit. But, uh, you know, as I talked to Bruce, after we had gotten somewhat better, I said, how do you, how do you handle people coming into your office every hour around the clock for a week? How do you cope? What part of your brain and life do you shut off so that you can go home and function? And he said, you know, Doug, I used to think it was that way, but now I've learned that I have to cry more. When I sit and hear these stories, I don't push it away. I enter in and weep and cry. Does that sound fun or what? (laughs) Welcome to ministry. But what are we crying about? We are a crying people because we follow a crying Savior. We've got to loosen up our tears, especially maybe for the lost. Do we cry for those who don't yet know Jesus? Or are we trusting in our chariots and our horses, right? The new things that we have, instead of trusting in, in Jesus, we're trusting in our resumes, our uniforms, our houses, our neighborhoods, our reputations, our brackets, our workouts, our technology. The good news, though, is Jesus says that our weeping will be turned to joy. We read that in in the psalm. We will feast in the house of Zion. There is shalom coming to our world, but we are not there yet. Crying. Crying doesn't sound like a lot of fun. I'm used to it. Cleaning. Mm. A little dirtier, maybe less embarrassing. Depends on what you're cleaning, I suppose. But John 19, we, we hear about Jesus cleansing the temple. This is talked about it a previous time. The situation is Jesus is at the temple again. He, he goes to the temple many times in his, his life, especially early, and then he's there a lot here at the end. And one thing you've got to remember about is the temple was awesome. I mean, it wasn't a seven wonder, but it was up there. It was a completely impressive place. And, you know, part of it still exists. It's, it's been around that long. You can visit parts that have not been wrecked. Although there's the dome with a rock on top of it now. And, and so this is a place where, of God's people. And in a Passover week, it, it's going to be super busy There's going to be all types of people in preparation, getting ready for the sacrifices. It's going to be bustling with the influx of people who have been made these pilgrimages to Jerusalem, going huge distances, coming in. They need places to stay. They need stuff. All this activity going on. And Jesus says, we got problems. Number one problem, the transactions are not fair. The prices that are being charged are way over what they should be. 
Problem number two, the priests are involved in all of this. Number three, the location. It's in the court of the Gentiles. This is a place where, where God had designed for anyone to come. And, and God's people had said, we're going to squeeze that space out. We're going to set up for us to, to do transactions here. And so the people that were invited, outsiders, couldn't even get into the space that they had for them. The nations were not allowed to be invited. The place of reflection and prayer had gotten to be a madhouse. Jesus won't have it. He loses his temper. How about that for an emotional life, right? He drives everyone out. He flips the tables. Now I have in mind on this one, my buddy Jake Spencer and I used to go to these board game conferences, which is not nerdy at all. <laughs> Whatever you're thinking, it's not. So imagine this big, huge ballroom with tables set up and, and really a thousand people and all playing games and uh, they're board games, so they're, they're super fun. But now imagine like at 10 o'clock at night, Jake gets mad at some of the rules and he starts flipping all the tables up creating havoc, really ticking people off who were having a good time or doing their thing. It was completely unexpected. And in a different text, it says that he pulls out a whip. But this isn't like an Indiana Jones whip or something that Jesus got whipped with. This is a, more like a show. He's not hurting people. He's hurt at what's happening Jesus is Lord of the whips, and he's Lord of the wine, and he's Lord of weeping. Tim Keller has some sermons like that. I want to mention what I have in mind in this is that when I was visiting in Portugal one time, we went to a, a Catholic uh, holy site, cathedral. It was a type of place where people would make a pilgrimage on their knees for miles and miles and miles, and then finally get there and go up the steps and pray to the statue, which is all interesting, but around the temple, or around the church, around the church square, there were all these booths. And at these booths, you could buy not only candles and trinkets and stuff like that, you could buy wax things. Like you could buy a wax elbow, or a wax hand, or a wax foot, or a wax head. And this was to symbolize, like a candle would a prayer, this would to symbolize a part of your body or life that you wanted to put on the altar as a prayer. There were wax babies. But then you would buy your wax thing, take it, put it on the altar, which was hot. The, max, the wax would melt into a mold, and they would come and bring it back out and repeat that process over and over again. The place of peace and prayer has become a den of robbers. And Jesus dwells at the temple. The temple is supposed to be a place of worship and justice and peace and grace. 
and hospitality and shalom, not oppression, not oppression for the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow and the orphan and the lost. Well, how do we apply this text? We should be generous with our spaces. We need to be careful when we erect barriers that keep lost people or maybe recently lost people or wandering people or stumbling people from our midst. It's easy to do, but we need to practice a radical hospitality. I'm not talking about being seeker-sensitive. I'm talking about just being sinner-sensitive. We already have so many things that are strange if you haven't grown up with it. I'm not suggesting we take them away. But how can we make this a place where people feel like they belong or can belong or want to ask questions? How can we make it accessible? And then, you know, one more thing is whenever or if you ever get a building, your own space, remember, that building is not sacred because it is a building. It's sacred when God's people come in and gather and worship in spirit and truth. And so we've got to remember that our spaces and our things aren't the thing that makes it special. It's God in us. We are His temple. The Holy Spirit in us. And lastly, Jesus might clean house. Jesus is gentle and kind and sometimes mean and wild, if you take it that way. He says things that will enter in to your heart and mess you up because he loves you. And he can find things in there. There's a guy named uh, Walter Samazko Jr., and, and he grew up with his mom never got married, never had a family, and then she died, and then he was in the house before he passed away for 20 years, and no one had seen him. Recluse and a hoarder. And when he died, they were thinking about taking the house and just selling it, you know, like on uh, Storage Wars or whatever. Just whoever wants to buy it, just whatever's in there. But they decided to go through and figure out what he had. He, he had $200,000 in the bank, Decent. But then they found a 1968 Mustang that had never been driven. Buried in a garage of stuff. They found $12,000 of just cash. And they found two wheelbarrows, wheelbarrows of gold. He had $7 million of actual gold. Jesus may find some stuff. When he goes cleaning, he's resourceful. Amen, I'm glad that that's true. Okay, lastly, authority, right? Now we're in chapter 20. And uh, remember, these chapter divisions aren't uh, in the text itself. They were added. And so this comes right after him cleansing the temple. And the thing about authority is we probably are raised, at least in our circles maybe, of like, yes, 
follow authority. Authority is good, which is relatively true, right? I don't want to be the person that points out the, the postmodern flaws of everything, but it depends on what the authority is, whether you should follow it or not, to some degree. Should the Russian soldiers be following their authority? Because there's been appeals to, to them to say, just, just put it down. Leave your, leave your stuff. Leave your tanks. Just walk away. But that's not what someone in the, who an authority wants. Or think about another way to look back, because you know the Jim Crow laws that came up. And they came up from the people. There was a long time where there were none of those laws, and then they started getting on the books. 1907, you cannot call from this phone. You must call from this phone. And this is a small thing that then got enforced by the citizens. They, they thought this is the way it is. Until someone said, no. It turns out in um, 1947, it, or in uh, chapter 19, verse 47, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy Jesus. They didn't really like having their stuff wrecked. So they wanted to destroy him. They just didn't want to kick him out of the temple. They wanted him done. This is not the guy. This is complete repudiation. We are going to cut him down. He is no good. So they have this question. Tell us by what authority do you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. And Jesus comes back at them with this John the Baptist question. Now they do not like John the Baptist. They don't like him because he points to Jesus. So they're trying to get at him, but their problem, which the text says, is everybody loves John the Baptist. And so they feel caught and they say we don't have a comment. Now Jesus, is, he's so great in this because uh, he does two things. He, one, answers their question with a question. And number two, gives a no comment. Brian Reagan has a great bit where he talks about how politicians do this. And he's like, I didn't know you could have a no comment. You know, if I knew that in high school... Brian, what's the square root of blah, blah, blah? He's like, I'm not taking questions today. <laughs> Excuse me. Or, Brian, uh, who's the 20th president? He said, well, that's a good question. Let me ask, answer your question with a question. How much Chuck Wood does a woodchuck chuck? Woodchuck could chuck wood? I believe that is sufficient. <laughs> So it's not an honest question that they ask him. They have their answer. And then he tells this parable. It's very similar to the one that we talked about last week. The very end, the ten minas. Because it has this uh, conflict with it. It's autobiographical again. But in this parable, unlike the last one, they get the sun. They kill the person they want to. And the real important thing about this one is this vineyard theme, that's a theme for Israel. If you go back, you can see that, that when God talks about the vineyard, He's talking about 
his people. And, and, and he sent prophets, and they didn't heed him. And then he sends his sons. Think about all the sons. Even in just uh, Genesis, you've got Abraham gets Isaac. Isaac gets Jacob, right? And at the end, Joseph gets sent to Egypt and saves his family. All these sons are being sent. And Jesus is the son, the last one to get sent. But he's rejected and and sacrificed. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords is judged. And, and, And he says there will be new vineyards. New vine dressers. And they do not like it because they understand what he's saying. They say, surely not. Surely not God's going to give away his kingdom, us. And Jesus finishes the parable with what we read here in 2017. What then is this that's written, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's from Psalm 118, which we started off with. His steadfast love remains forever. That, that word hesed, that covenantal faithfulness of God. The Messiah's reign. And blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And this text that Jesus quotes from. That, 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 that God has made an, a plan. He has architects and models and dimensions and materials And there's this expectation for this beautiful house, this beautiful building. And they say, no, it won't work. We don't like that plan. We have our own plan. We reject your plan, architect, builder, king. But then the cornerstone is put in and it's an exact fit. And Jesus says, it's marvelous. It's marvelous. It's necessary. We should rejoice because what was required has a perfect fit. It's unexpected. And it's real. And Jesus Himself, that cornerstone, opens the way to salvation of the world. It saves the nations. It's marvelous. It's marvelous. So today... Do you follow Jesus' authority? What authorities are you following? Who are your prophets, priests, and, and king? How do you make sense of the world? Do you think Jesus' plan is a bad one? Are you ho-hum about it? Lethargic? Or are you embracing it? cheering for it, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, that He is the cornerstone, that He is the authority to trust and to follow. There's a children's book, it's called Don't Cross the Line, and and in the book, there's a line, and there's a general, and he says, don't cross that line, and everyone's obeying his authoritativeness. And one by one, they sort of get interested, like, what's over in that? on the other side? And they, they poke their hand over or whatever. And then they realize, it's fine. 
So I think Jesus is saying, come on over. Come with me. Follow me. Cross the lines of the world. Cross the lines of your other loves, the things that you hold so dear, and follow me. Amen. Amen. We have several responses. The first is to come in some reflection. So we have a brief moment here of silence where we respond to the Holy Spirit and what He's saying to us. Let's do that now.